right, well, this Sunday, this morning here, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead, open up to John chapter 3. Yes, that, John chapter 3. And uh, Robbie is going to lead us in the reading of God's Word. John 3, verse 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Thank you so much, Robbie. Well, as I was thinking about and studying for this sermon, it might have been the fact that I knew it was going to be on Father's Day or perhaps uh, all the born-again language in this passage here. Um, but I couldn't help but think about, the, think about the day when I first found out I was going to be a dad. Um, in fact, I, I kind of thought about all of the days when I found out that I was going to be a dad. Uh, the first time that I found out I was going to be a dad, it was early February 2009. I had gotten off work, and as I walked out to my car, um, I opened up my front door, just a normal day, and, and in the front seat is a box that wasn't there when I got out of the car to go to work. It was a, a, a Build-A-Bear box, and just kind of confused, not knowing what in the world is going on, why in the world is this in my car. I, I open it up, I pull out this, this fluffy brown teddy bear. Uh, knowing there's a little recording you can put in there, I, I, you know, I search for its paws, I find the little recording button and I push it. And to my surprise, to my delight, I hear the voice of my bride, I hear Donna say, the test results are in and you're going to be a daddy. 
This was just uh, perhaps one of the one of the best days of my life. Shocked, I I looked up from the car. I see Donna across the parking lot, staring at me. Obviously, super excited. Uh, we hug. We then go about telling telling all of our family here that that's Mackenzie, our first kid. But as time went on, as the as the number of our kids grew, um, the less and less exciting the stories became. <laughs> Um, two and a half years later, I found out we were pregnant with Kaylee as I was literally walking down the hallway of our apartment and Donna just pops out of the room and says, I'm pregnant. <laughs> right? Still super excited, still no less excited I was when we found out we were pregnant than with Mackenzie, but it's not a Build-A-Bear, right? And then, and then again, a couple years later, and it's time for me to find out that we are pregnant again with our third daughter, Aubrey. And no joke, I find out, because as I come home, I see that there is a pregnancy box in the trash can. And I go, Donna, what's the story here? Why in the world is there a pregnancy test in the trash can? And she goes, oh yeah, I'm pregnant again. <laughs> And then, and then came our fourth kid, Bradley. I just want to say right in the beginning, sorry for all you fourth kids out there. Um, but she literally calls me as I am on the way home from work and says, hey, I'm sure she said sweetie, hey sweetie, I think I might be pregnant. Can you pick up a pregnancy test from the store? <laughs> so here, we've gone from Build-A-Bear in the front seat of my car all the way to pick me up a pregnancy test on your way home from work. Um, you know, we were certainly in different seasons of life. We had different levels of expect of expectation with each kid. But the more and more I thought about that story, it re I, I thought I kept coming back to this passage here, and I just kept thinking about how sometimes our interaction with this passage, our response to the wonderful message of this passage here in John chapter three, can be just like my experience of finding out we were pregnant, right? The first time you, you hear this message of John 3.16, you hear this message of the new birth, and you are just so excited. It is Build-A-Bear in the front seat of your car, right? And then as time goes on, as it gets to the, the fourth time, or the 14th time, or the 40th time of hearing it, it can, it can lose its excitement, right? It can become, hey, pick me up a pregnancy test on your way home from work. The impact that it can have on our affections can begin to, to fade, can begin to change as time goes on. But the truth is that a passage like this one is not meant to lose its excitement. It is, it is not meant to, to lose its excitement, but it is meant to grow in, ex in our excitement over the truth of this passage as time goes on in terms of how we think about ourselves, in terms of how we think about who God is and who God is for us. So this morning, as we look at this very familiar passage of Scripture, I want to work through this passage answering three questions that with increasing anticipation are meant to increase our understanding and our excitement for the truth of God's love for us. And as I've been preparing for this message, it's been my prayer that for the first time or for perhaps the hundredth time, that as we encounter Jesus in this passage here, that he will help us to know his love for us and that we will experience again what it feels like to be an object of God's love, to be an object of his affections for us. 
to John chapter 3, starting in verse 1 here, we learn that Jesus is approached by a man named Nicodemus. And in verse 1, we learn that he is a, a Pharisee and he is a, a member of the, the Jewish ruling council. That is the Sanhedrin. There were about 70 men or 71 men who made up this council, and Nicodemus is one of them. And in verse 2, we read that he comes to Jesus by night. Here is Jesus, this very powerful, this very well-respected and very religious man. He comes to Jesus at night. And truth be told, we're not really sure why he comes at night. It could be that he came because he didn't want others to see him. Perhaps he was zealous for his reputation and, and being seen going to, to talk to Jesus could have been a, a hit to his reputation. That, that is certainly possible. Um, but it's also possible here that Jesus went, that Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night precisely because he knew when this would be, when others would see him when others would, would listen in to this conversation. You see, there's, there's a lot of, of sociological evidence from the time that rabbis would study and they would debate into the long hours of the night. And these were, were very public spectacles where people who were wanting to learn what were the rabbis teaching, what were the, the rabbis debating, they would, they would come and they would sit in to overhear these debates, to, to overhear these discussions. And so it's possible that we, we see the, these we language here that Nicodemus uses. It's possible as he's speaking with Jesus, he's speaking of, um, for a group of people that he has come with to see Jesus. And so, so we're not exactly sure, truth be told here, we're not sure why he comes at night. And, and the text doesn't tell us if anyone else is there with him or not. But I think that the main reason why, the, why the John, the, the apostle here, includes this detail in the text isn't to indicate what time Nicodemus came to Jesus, but it's to indicate, it's to, to tip us off as the readers to Nicodemus's spiritual condition. You see that this word night, every time it is used in the Gospel of John, it is, it is meant to, to, to clue you into the reality of, of spiritual darkness. We see the word language comes up time and time again to refer to the, the spiritual darkness that is uh, defining a person, that is defining an event that is happening. And that's what we're to see here is that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he is spiritually blind. He hasn't had his eyes open. And so here we see that Nicodemus, spiritually blind, he comes to Jesus. And in verse 2, we hear him say, Rabbi. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, having heard about Jesus, having heard about the signs that he had done, certainly turning the water into wine, and presumably there are other miracles that John just hasn't recorded for us that Nicodemus knew of. He heard of these. He had been familiar with what had been said of Jesus, and he comes to him, and in effect he says, Jesus, we, we know that you're not an, an ordinary teacher because no ordinary teacher can do what you're doing. God, God must be with you in some way. Now, Nicodemus here hasn't exactly asked Jesus a question, 
but it's certainly implied here, right? We, Jesus is wanting to see what is what is Jesus going to what is Jesus going to say in return to this statement here that that you must be with God, that God must be with you. He's trying to to find out from Jesus: Are are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18, or are you just someone else who who's come to us who has the ability to do miracles? But Jesus here, we see, will have none of Nicodemus's religious gains. And in verse 3, he replies to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see here, Jesus' reply, he, he completely ignores Nicodemus's roundabout question of his identity, and, in head, and instead he speaks directly to Nicodemus's heart, telling him the truth that he most needed to hear, and the truth that we most need to hear this morning. He says to Nicodemus, he says to us through his word, truly, truly. Now, whenever you see this phrase in, in the Gospels, it's, it's meant to be like a flashing light. They're meant to be flashing warning lights that are meant to get, us our, to get our attention. They're meant to, to clue us in that, hey, what comes next is important. You need to, to pay attention to what I'm about to say. And so Jesus says, truly, truly, and, and Nicodemus is clued in. He wants to know what's Jesus going to say. And he continues, he says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And here we have our, our first question, and that is, what does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be born again? In this passage here, we see that to be born again, it means to receive spiritual life from God. It means to be awakened to the things of God by God. The Puritans talked about this, um, about, about being born again or about this new birth here, uh, using the phrase, uh, the life of God in the soul of man. You, you read that time and time again in their writings. And this, and this being born again here it refers to God implanting new life, new eternal, eternal spiritual life into the spiritually dead, into the empty soul where there has never been life before. And the fact, um, and, and what we're meant to get here is this, this phrase, born again, can also be translated born from above. Your, your Bible might even use that translation or might have it footnoted saying, truly, truly, you must be born again. And here, this is just meant to, to underscore the reality that this new birth, this, this spiritual birth can only come from God. It is God himself who is granting new life, who is imparting new life to the dead soul. And, what, what, and as we consider here who Jesus is talking to, this, this reality of the new birth, it's really meant to, to stop us in our tracks as we, we realize that he is talking to Nicodemus. I mean, Nicodemus, as, as we see in verse 1, he was a, a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the, the cream of the crop. He was the most religious man out there. And here Jesus is telling him that if he wants to see the kingdom of God, if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, he needs to be born again. And that just would have stopped Nicodemus in his tracks. Because in this statement here, Jesus is essentially undoing everything that Nicodemus has built his life around. 
You see, Nicodemus had spent his entire life teaching others and modeling how to enter the kingdom of God. And here Jesus is telling him that left to himself, that he has absolutely no hope of seeing or entering God's promised kingdom. All of the knowledge that Nicodemus had, his position, his cultural heritage, his, his religious background, his elite resume, none of those things mattered at all when it came to entering God's kingdom. If Nicodemus is going to enter the kingdom at all, then he's going to need to be acted upon by God. He's going to need to be born from above. And all this here we see is just too much for Nicodemus. Uh, if he were to believe this, it would, it would upend everything that he spent his life building. And so here in verse 4, we see that Nicodemus takes Jesus' words in the most literalistic way possible, almost as if to, to mock or insult Jesus. And he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? And he's saying, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? That just doesn't make any sense at all, this, this language of being born again. What are you talking about? And again, as we see in verse 5, Jesus will have none of Nicodemus's games here. And instead, he comes right back at Nicodemus, clarifying what he said in even more explicit language, what he said in verse 3, here in verse 5. He says, truly, truly. Again, it's those flashing lights that are meant to grab our attention. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. With these words, it should have been, been clear to Nicodemus what Jesus meant by being born again. Because this word picture here of, of water and the Spirit, it comes from one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament from Ezekiel 36. Here, the nation of Israel is in exile, and through the prophet Ezekiel, God makes these promises to them where he says that I will sprinkle you clean with water, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you hear the echoes of Jesus' words here in this statement of, unless one is born of water and spirit, Jesus is echoing this prophecy from Ezekiel 36, where God says that I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will put a new spirit in you. And again here, the goal of Jesus' words is to make it, clear that, make it clear to Nicodemus that there's absolutely nothing that he can do to save himself. He must be acted upon by God. And as we read over and over in Ezekiel 36, God says, I will do this, I will do that. In fact, in just two verses, in verses 25 and 26, we read five times God say, I will, I will, I will, highlighting the importance that God must work. There is nothing that we can do to be born again. We are completely passive, but it is God the one who is taking the initiative to grant the new birth, to grant new life. So this is, this is Jesus answering the what question. What does it mean to be born again? But this naturally leads to a second question, which is why must we be born again? And it's clearly, it's clearly important to Jesus that Nicodemus understand that he needs to receive spiritual life from God, but why? 
Well, here in verse 6, we see that Jesus starts to answer this question when he says to Nicodemus that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. The reason why Nicodemus, the reason why all of us must be born again is because the flesh, our, our human nature, can't produce salvation. It can only produce flesh, right? Human nature produces human nature. Flesh produces flesh. And here you can almost see Jesus attacking what would, what would have been a very common view of the Jews during that day, where they would have thought that just because they were the children of Abraham by birth, that they had entrance into God's kingdom down. That their, their ticket had been punched, as it were, because they were the children of Abraham. So, of course, salvation was promised to them. But here Jesus is helping him see that his, his birth, his physical birth into the line of Abraham meant absolutely nothing. Because flesh can only give birth to flesh. If Nicodemus or anyone else was going to receive spiritual life, they must be born of the spirits. And here, what's, what's not exactly explicit in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, um, it's reflected very clearly in John's comments in verses 16 to 21 about this conversation. You see, as, as John is later writing this gospel, recounting Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he kind of adds in some reflections, some thoughts on that conversation, starting in verse 16. And as we read in perhaps the, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And here the implication in, in, in John's words here are that those who don't believe in Jesus will perish, that they will miss out on the blessings of eternal life because of the wrath of God against their sin remains on them. This here is exactly what we see in verse 18 when, when John says that those who don't believe in Jesus, they're condemned already. The reason we see why Jesus is so adamant that Nicodemus must be born again is because he knows that apart from the work of God in his life, apart from being born again, he will remain under God's judgment for his sin. He will remain under God's wrath, which is why Jesus tells him, cuts right to his heart in verse 3, you must be born again. Well, here, if you're tracking with me thus far, we've seen why, we've seen what the new birth is. It's, it's new spiritual life from God. We've seen why Nicodemus and all of us need to receive this new birth. It's because apart from this new birth, we are dead in our sins and trespasses, as Paul writes. But, but he is yet to answer probably the most important question, the question that Nicodemus is asking himself right now, going, how? How is this possible? How is it possible to be born again? In verse 9, right, Nicodemus says exactly this, hearing Jesus talk about the need to be born of the Spirit and, and the Spirit blowing wherever it wishes. Nicodemus says to Jesus, how can these things be? He's just, at this point, just exasperated. He has, he has no clue how is this going to happen if my works aren't going to make it happen, if my birth into the, this Jewish culture isn't going to make it happen, if being a Pharisee isn't going to make it happen, how in the world can I be born again? In verse 10, we see that even though Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel, Nicodemus had missed so much. 
There was so much about salvation, so much about God's grace that he had missed out on. And so Jesus reminds him, so Jesus tells him a story. In verses 14 and 15, Nicodemus, or Jesus, says to Nicodemus, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Here Jesus is, is wanting to, to now show Nicodemus how you can be born again. And he does it by alluding to this famous incident in Israel's history. Here this incident is in, in Numbers 21. And, and in the book of Numbers is just the story of, of God's people complaining time and time again and experiencing his judgment on their sin and rebellion time and time again. And here in this incident, in Numbers 21, the people begin to complain and they, they start to speak against God and against Moses. And, and God in response to their, into their sin, he, he sends an infestation of, of poisonous snakes whose, whose venom is described as being like fire. I mean, it's almost like something you'd expect to see in an Indiana Jones movie, uh, this scene here in Numbers 21. And as you'd expect, as these, these snakes bit the people, many of them died. And as the people began to see this, this incident for what it was, God's just judgment on their sin, the people cry out to God, the people repent, and they say, save us, make a, make a way of salvation here. And God, in his grace, he does just that, as he provides a way of salvation for the people, as he, as he tells Moses to, to, to make a snake and to put this snake on a pole and to lift it up in the presence of the people. And as the people in Israel who have been bit by the snake, as they, they turn their eyes, as they look to the snake on the pole, they will be granted physical life. And so hearing this way of salvation that God has made for the people of Israel, Moses does just this. He, he fashions this bronze snake. He, he puts it up on a pole, and everyone who's been bitten, they look at it, and they live. Their lives are, are physically saved. And using this, this story that would have been familiar to all of the Jewish people at the time, Jesus shows Nicodemus how he can be born again. Or as he says in verse 15, how he can receive eternal life. And the answer here is to look to, to believe in Jesus, the Son of Man, who will be lifted up on the cross. You see, when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, just like when the snake was lifted up on the pole, Jesus made salvation, the way of salvation possible for all who will look to him. I just, I just love this account. I just love how clear and how simple this, this illustration is. It, is. it is my nature to take something simple and to make it very complicated. Just ask my wife. I, I preface my prefaces. Um, and I just, if it's simple, I'm going to find a way to make it complicated. But here, just so thankfully, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus makes it so clear, so plain, how we can be born again. He tells us that if you want to be born again, you need to be just like the Israelites in the wilderness, those who saw their need for salvation and looked to God for his provision. You see, there were many people who were bitten by snakes that day in the desert who died because they did not look to the pole. Bitten in need of salvation, they refused to take God's provision and to look to his provision in the serpent on the pole. 
And here Jesus is saying that if you want to be born again, if you want to be saved, to experience salvation, you need to be like those who saw their need, who saw their, that they were under the just judgment of their sin, and to look to God's provision of salvation in Christ. And the same here is true for us today. Anyone who sees their need for salvation and looks to Jesus, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection alone for the forgiveness of sins, will, re will receive not just physical life like the Israelites did, but they will receive eternal life. And this phrase here, eternal life, just would have been music to Nicodemus's ear here. This, this word eternal life, it was, a, it was a synonym for the kingdom of God. And it meant being in relationship with God. It meant knowing God in a, a personal and intimate relationship with him. Having fellowship with God, the creator of the universe. And experiencing all of the blessings that flow from relationship with him, not just in the age to come, but today, right now. While there is certainly much more that could be said about this very familiar passage, I think that we have unpacked here the, the heart of its message for us, seeing, seeing the what, why, and how of being born again. And as we close, I just want to take some time to make some applications to our lives. I think that the first application for each and every one of us this morning is to be honest with ourselves. Because just like Nicodemus, just like Jesus approached Nicodemus or told Nicodemus that he must be born again, the truth is that everyone here, everyone who can hear my voice must be born again to see the kingdom of God. So I just want to ask you this morning, have you been born again? Have you believed in Jesus? Have you looked to him? There is no more important question in all of life. And just like he shows Nicodemus, when it comes to being born again, there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn this. At this point, as I was thinking about this passage, I just kept coming back to the children and to the young adults here in our midst. Because many of you may have been born to Christian parents, you've been raised in Christian homes, gone to church every Sunday. Perhaps you went to a Christian school or you were, went to a Christian college. But just like none of Nicodemus's works, just like none of Nicodemus's high position could save him, None of those things can save you either. You must be born again. You must look to Jesus, trusting in him alone for salvation. So this morning, I just want to hear, I want you all to hear Jesus's invitation to turn to him, to trust in him, to take your eyes off of yourself, to stop thinking that you can somehow earn your salvation, that somehow you can do enough to make yourself okay with God and to turn to him asking him to grant you this new life, asking him to grant you this new birth. Do it now. Don't let this moment pass you by. If you are, are here, if this is new to you, or if you have any questions, I just want to encourage you to talk to me after the service. If you have any questions, talk to, any, any, talk to anyone here. They would gladly answer your questions. They would love to care for you. That's the first application here is to, to be honest with ourselves, to ask ourselves, have we trusted in Christ? Have we been born again? I think that the second thing this passage calls us to do is it calls us to be humble. 
As I hope you're seeing, if you are here and you are a Christian, Jesus has made it perfectly clear that this has absolutely nothing to do with you. It wasn't because of your eye color, or your eye color, it wasn't because of your IQ, it wasn't because of the color of your skin, it wasn't because you were better or smarter or more religious or had your life more put together than anyone else, but it is only because of God's grace and mercy on you. Just like you had absolutely nothing to do with your physical birth, and that goes for all of us here, none of us had any role to play in our physical birth. So you had nothing to do with your spiritual birth. You were, you were like the stones in the Chronicles of Narnia that, that came to life when Aslan breathed his breath of living life onto them. If, if you are here and trusting in Christ, it is only because God has first acted on you. There's no room to boast here except in Christ. Because this new birth, this new birth here should help make us the most humble people forever are the most humble people ever. And I think that there are just two things that this can do here for us. I'm just particularly I'm thinking of our parents out there. Um, and I'm thinking of myself as well. As we think about raising our, raising our children, I think that this truth here, this passage, is meant to be a means of great comfort for us as it makes it very clear that at the end of the day that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to grant spiritual birth to our children. There is nothing that we can do to, to birth our kids into the kingdom of God, as it were. The Holy Spirit must act. As Jesus says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. The, the grace of God cannot be explained. It is mysterious. And, and I don't say this to, to minimize our calling as parents to be, to be faithful in teaching and, and training our children, of showing them the, the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of the gospel. But at the end of the day, God must do the miraculous work in their hearts. So if you're here and perhaps you have older children who are not walking with the Lord, I would just say don't beat yourself up. Take comfort that the wind blows where it wishes. Don't, don't think for one second that if you had only done X, Y, or Z, if you had only done this more or that more, that your kids would still be walking with the Lord. Because the wind blows where it wishes. The Spirit must grant new life. If you are here with little kids, just let this reality here drive you to prayer. Let it drive you to an increased desire to teach and to train your children. But as we do this, do this in independence upon the necessity for God to be at work. Not trusting in yourself, not depending upon yourself to save your kids, but looking and crying and throwing yourself on God's mercy to grant new life to your kids. I think as a, perhaps a takeaway here for us as we think about the fact that we can't save ourselves, I think that this should drive us to prayer as well, not just for our children, but for all of those that we relate with that we know of who don't know the Lord. I know uh, a while back, Tab had, had mentioned the practice of writing uh, at least three names on a note card of people that you want to be praying for, people that you are just hoping that God will be at work in their life. If, if your card has gotten lost or perhaps it's gotten dusty, I would just encourage you this morning to, 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 to go home, get a new note card, or type it out on your phone, whatever that is, and just let this passage, this reality that God must grant the new birth, drive you more and more to prayer, asking that God will do in their lives what only he can do. 
think this passage here, it's calling us to be honest. It's calling us to be humble. And I think lastly, this passage is calling us here to behold God's love for us. And this gets back to what I was talking about when we first started. The reality that when things get familiar, when a passage like this gets familiar, it can easily lose its impact on us. And I think nowhere are we more in danger of this than when it comes to talking about God's love for us. We can hear a verse like John 3.16, this verse that undergirds the whole reason why Jesus came to earth, why Jesus died on the cross, why Jesus rose from the grave. The fact that God in his love for us sent his son. That as we think about God's love, that that reality can, if you're anything like me, can just become so familiar that it can easily lose its impact on our hearts. But that just shouldn't be the case. Um, And this is, um, but that just shouldn't be the case here with this. And so as we think about this passage, this passage here should, should be a reminder to us once again of God's great love for us that while we were sinners, through the gift of his son, that Jesus made a way of salvation possible. You see, the most striking reality about our salvation isn't the fact that there is only one way, but the fact that God made a way at all for us to be saved. You see, there's nothing in us deserving of his grace. And yet, for reasons only known to God, he made a way and he set his love on us. So if you are here, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have been born again, look to yourself as an object of God's affections. God desires your ultimate well-being. He desires to be close to you and to experience communion with you. John 3.16 reminds us here that Jesus will never grow tired of you. He never holds you at arm's length, no matter what you have done or not done. This was true of you before you trusted in Jesus, and nothing will ever change that. So as we think about this passage here, as we reflect on John 3.16, as we reflect on the reality of this new birth, let it be an encouragement to us to soak and to meditate on God's love for us all the more, that we might be more aware of who he is and what he has done for us. Well, as we close, I want to close, we want us to close by celebrating the Lord's Supper together.